Hello, my name is Jess Lindley and this is Arthur's Heroes, the podcast from Arthur's Place, the magazine and social network for young adults with arthritis. You can find us at arthursplace.co.uk and follow Arthur's Place on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. This podcast is supported by Novartis UK. We are grateful to Novartis for their support, but they have no influence over the content of the podcast. We all know that at the end of a difficult day, a good heart-to-heart with sympathetic friends or family can make us feel so much better, especially when they themselves have been through a similar experience. But what do we do when we're faced with a huge, life-changing event, such as an arthritis diagnosis, and we don't know anyone else who's been through it? Enter my guest on this episode of Arthur's Heroes, Kate. Kate has spent the past eight years selflessly supporting others, first as a teacher, then working on the refugee crisis in Greece, before volunteering for The Listening Place, a charity that supports people experiencing suicidal feelings. All of these experiences demonstrate her commitment to making the world a better place using human connection and her boundless empathy. Kate's compassion doesn't stop there. In 2019, Kate set up the REM project, which provides a listening service to people recently diagnosed with chronic illness. In other words, she has offered an answer to one of the most baffling questions of all. Who can we talk to about all of this? All of the worry, uncertainty about the future and the need to reevaluate our understanding of the rest of our lives. The questions that keep us up at night but sound stupid if we try to say them out loud. The REM project provides one-to-one listening support and there are no stupid questions. Not only has Kate, alongside her team, provided a solution to this conundrum, she has chosen to navigate the fine line between looking after others and looking after herself. Kate, welcome to Arthur's Heroes. Where does your desire to help other people come from? Probably an, uh, um, an awareness of how much help I've needed over the years um, and the need to help others along the way in similar journeys. So it's, this desire has manifested itself in quite a few different ways, as I alluded to in the introduction. Can you tell us a bit about all of your experiences, so from teaching right through to the listening place and, and what you've learned from those experiences? So I began as a teacher in a pupil referral unit um, in Hackney, which is sort of the equivalent of once you get expelled from school, you go to a unit that supports you with education, tries to get you GCSEs through alternative methods. And I did that for about a year and a half and realised that I loved connecting with people. That was my number one thing that really excited me. So I then went into teacher training and after teacher training, I um, began in a school in Hackney. Uh, it was a inner city girls school um, where the, the girls had enormous fire and excitement and, and basically just needed an expression. And I loved it to be able to communicate with adults that really wanted to understand how they, what, what kind of adults they could be. And from that, I took a job as head of history in another school um, after a couple of years, which I also loved, but it removed my connection so much from the students. And about the same time, I went to um, Calais with my younger brother over the Christmas and realized that I also loved that. I think I suppose I, I just realized I love too many things. 
But the uniting factor above it all, I think, was a connection with people. And in Calais, it was quite startling how desperate the situation was. And from that, it sort of redirected me from teaching to the refugee crisis. So then to, to continue, I, uh, I mo- I've decided to leave teaching and I moved full time to Greece for two years where I ran a large well, distribution over quite a few camps in the north. And again, it was all about connecting with the people that were there. And I love trying to battle with them in Greek or Arabic, uh, my very few words that I was picking up along the way. I was going to ask you if there were linguistic barriers. Oh God, huge, huge. I think I basically just learned the basic words and to laugh at each other. And that's pretty much all you need, I think. And it was great. It was really exhausting and very emotionally draining, but I loved it. Um, And I think, to be honest, a lot of my teaching up until then enabled me to be able to do it. It gave me the resilience to be able to face long days and endlessly talking to people and trying to communicate. And yes, so then after two years, I came back to the UK because I actually got quite unwell. So I came back to the UK and started volunteering for The Listening Place, which is a charity that supports people that are suicidal. And I worked there for the last couple of years and it, it was amazing. It's, it still is amazing. I still volunteer there and I love it. Uh, and again, it's all about connecting with people, I suppose. Yeah, so there's definitely a common thread running through this. I mean, none of those sound like easy decisions to make. I think Zoe's podcast proved to us all that, that going into teaching in itself is by no means a simple thing to do. And then to leave the sort of rel- relative comfort and familiarity of that and uproot yourself to Greece, that must have been quite a decision to make. Yeah, it really was. I don't, uh, to be honest, I don't know whether I was, um, I suppose part of me was running away from being unwell and wanting to start, start afresh. And part of me was wanting to accept the fact that I was unwell and start afresh. Um, it was a weird a duality about it. Um, I suppose that's actually stayed with me even up until now. I can't quite work out whether I'm running away or running towards. <laughs> I think sometimes it can be both at once but I think probably it would surprise a lot of our listeners and me included to hear that when you became unwell to the point that you could no longer stay in Greece the obvious choice to you was to come back and to volunteer for a charity where you talk to people who are feeling suicidal that doesn't necessarily seem like an an obvious way to to recover or to make yourself feel better was there a particular reason that that drew you? I was volunteering there anyway, and I had someone that worked there already that had Crohn's disease. And she was the person that I would, she would be my boss. And it really incentivized me to get that job and really has been a major reason why I've wanted to set up the REN project. So we'll come on to the REN project a bit more in a second. But was there anything, was there something specific about each one of your experiences prior to the REN project? So teaching refugees and listening place that that made them special or was there something that united them I think I really like working with people that um put my situation into a bit of perspective and and make me really concentrate on how to support other people and even as I'm saying that I'm worried I sound too savior-like which is definitely not what I'm intending it just I've always found it really comforting to be able to go out and help and support others 
So was it that instinct in particular that led you to set up the REM project? I think so. Okay, so at this point, I've got to ask you the probably obvious question. What is the REM project exactly? It is an, a charity that uh, was set up in early 2019. Uh, and we support people with autoimmune diseases. And the point of it is to offer one-to-one ongoing support. And the real aim is to pair you up with someone that will essentially follow your story. Because I think that it is so important to have someone there for the good and the bad, but just be the, be the consistent thread in your story. I think it can make an enormous difference to have someone like that. So you mentioned before about, I think when you were talking about teaching in your pupil referral unit about attempting to get people GCSEs, for example, who may not have otherwise got them if they'd been, if they'd stayed in mainstream school. Do you think there's a particular aspect for you about not giving up on people? Yeah, I I think that's a really nice way of looking at it. And certainly, I think that that really echoes what I was trying to do in Greece about, I suppose, supporting people in the darkest moments, trying to get them through those moments um, and to put them on their own two feet and, uh, you know, proceed on their own with the support of knowing that someone's beside them if they need them. Do you think you need to have a special level of empathy and compassion for your fellow human to do that? I mean, I know it wouldn't be everybody's cup of tea, And I think some people might really struggle in that situation almost to know the right thing to say or the right thing to do. How do you know how to be in that moment? I think it's instinctual and I think we all have it inside us. Uh, I genuinely believe that. I think that often the thing to say is nothing at all, but just to know that there's someone there. So it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily require anything from me apart from the consistency and knowledge that I'm not going to... I'm not going to waver in my support or I'm not going to leave. And that's one of the crucial aspects of the REM project, isn't it? That it is a listening service rather than an advice service. Yeah, I, I often go back and say this to the volunteers when we're training them, that doctors will give you advice, family will give you advice, friends will give you advice. Um, and you're, off, you're often not going to have someone in life that genuinely will just try to listen from your perspective. And... Um, just reflect what you're saying and talk through the words that you are giving them rather than offer their opinion. And I think a lot of people might not necessarily look at that as an important distinction, but I think certainly it is one. So you said you set it up in early 2019. Was that a kind of independent decision or did you do it alongside somebody else? To be honest, I've had this idea for years and years and years. I knew I wanted support to support people with autoimmune diseases. But I never really knew how to do it. And in early 2019, I moved to Scotland to be with my grandma, who was very unwell and she was dying. And I lived with her for the last couple of months of her her life. And she and I used to talk about how difficult it was to ask for help and to articulate feelings of, I suppose, being in need. I think that's a common thread that comes up in a lot of these podcasts that people struggle to ask for help do you think that because the REM project exists to provide that listening service 
it almost removes the burden of asking for help because you don't feel like you're putting an additional strain on friends or family. Yeah, exactly. I also think that there's really part of it that um, it's a it's a real space to just make it all about you. And um, it's so difficult often to ask for help because it makes it all about you. And if you have a space that is devoted to that already, it makes it much easier to articulate something that you might need. That's a very interesting perspective. I never thought of it that way. So you set up their own projects. I'd be interested to know how it got its name. Yeah, so I I um, was with my gran for the last two years and she, sorry, two months. We talked a lot about this. She was a very proud woman, quite similar to me, very stubborn. Uh, didn't like off asking for help and she made me realize how important it is to um, create something where you don't need to it's just expected and she died in April 2019 and it really accelerated me to create the Wren project and she was a World War II Wren um, she was in the Women's Royal Navy and from that oh, I wow. got the name that's an an amazing link I was thinking it might have something to do with birds but no so if you don't mind me asking, how is it funded, the REM project? The first year is very much funded through friends, family and connections that we know that believe in me and the idea and the concept. And partly also through trusts and grants, which we're increasingly getting. We're supporting people that are lonely in COVID and vulnerable in COVID, which helps because there's lots of grants out there, quite rightly, to, to support organisations that are trying to do that. Yeah, definitely. And I think COVID has maybe shone light on, on people with autoimmune diseases in a way that nothing ever has before. Absolutely. And it's scary how um, how vulnerable people have been over the past year, year and a half and how alone they've been over the past year and a half. Yeah, definitely. I mean, speaking from a personal experience of shielding alone in a house 300 miles away from anyone else I might know, I can vouch personally that it's not always been that nice. Um, so you got in touch with Arthur's Place. Why was that? I came across Arthur's Place when I was working about two years ago with a friend on this idea of sort of helping people and not really having an idea of how to. And she showed me Arthur's Place and it was a really dynamic, young, vibrant website uh, that really changed my perspective on living with arthritis. It really removed me from the old posters of just um, quite elderly people suffering from rheumatoid arthritis, which I really didn't associate myself with. And I increasingly have used it for uh, to help me over the years. And I sort of always knew that I wanted to be connected to Arthur's Place in a way. And um, that's the reason why I reached out, really. Well, we're very glad that you did. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this podcast now. So if somebody listening to this podcast would like to chat to a listener at their own project, what should they do? So we have a referral form online and filling that in will put you directly in touch with me. And what I do is organise a time to speak either over video call or phone call. And we just have a chat about what's going on really and how their autoimmune disease is affecting them. And if they would then like our support, we'd set them up with a volunteer who they'd meet and then speak to every two weeks on a sort of informal, ongoing basis. And presumably this is done remotely? 
Yeah, it's done over um, video camera. And we made that decision because we firstly wanted to reach people throughout COVID. Um, but also we've had really incredible um, outreach, to be honest. We've, we're reaching people in Scotland, but also France, America, Germany. We got someone yesterday from Singapore that has now become a Wren, which is so exciting. Wow, so you're going international with this. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't think this early we would, but yeah, we have. Well, that's great news. It's, I think it's the same as, as Arthur's Place, you know, I know that has participants from around the world and it just goes to show that this perception of arthritis as an old person's disease is common in other places as well. It's not just a UK-based problem. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's um, And it's also startling how... Um, how much the model can appeal to everyone all over all over the world yeah i think everybody who has had the kind of shock of an arthritis diagnosis probably needs that space to just be themselves and talk whatever whatever that might look like for them so we've talked a bit about what the rem project does obviously it relies on volunteers and you have a very active role as well in sort of triaging all of the referrals how do you look after your volunteers when they're listening to people who might be struggling? I imagine this was the case as well at the listening place because listening to people who have suicidal thoughts can't be an easy thing to do. Yeah, and to be honest, you've identified um, the number one reason, you know, thing that we do and we, we've borrowed a lot of what we do from the listening place and they continue to support us. And so we support our volunteers. It's really at the heart of what we do because if they're, they're not good listeners, there's no point in having the REN project really. Um, yeah. So each volunteer will get a supervising volunteer um, and we call them volunteers, but it's actually staff mem members at the moment. So they'll have someone attributed to them and they will check in before the call and then after the call and try to be part of a shift of kind of five or six volunteers um, that would speak as one after all the sessions and kind of share stories. And it's such an important way of debriefing, learning from each other um, and feeling supported when there's been a difficult conversation. Yeah, you talked, you talked a bit earlier on about emotional drain in terms of particularly I think some of the things that you were you were dealing with in Greece and I can imagine that this is similar in that respect yeah and I've to be honest my time in Greece really highlighted it to me because I saw how volunteers that were unsupported very quickly can't do what they want to do so it's been the real heart of what we're trying to do uh, and build a really a, a big safety net as well as a community among the volunteers as well what qualities do you look for in your volunteers? I suppose I'm thinking if anybody listening wants to get involved as a volunteer rather than someone to be listened to. Primarily, we look for anyone that can show empathy and uh, understanding and just, I suppose, calm and peace is, is what I'd prioritise. We don't, we made a, a strange decision early on, which people question often. Um, but I still stand by that we don't necessarily need our volunteers to have an autoimmune disease or knowledge of an autoimmune disease. You know, I think the important thing when the volunteer is sitting in front of a wren is that the volunteer understands the autoimmune disease through the eyes of that wren, through their experience with that autoimmune disease. So, and it really helps sometimes when they don't know anything about the autoimmune disease that they have. Yeah, I can imagine actually in that 
that situation it might almost be better if they don't because then they can't they can't turn it around it's what you said before about it's all about you there can't be any well in my experience it's just it almost avoids any temptation that they start giving advice I suppose exactly I have it so much when I'm triaging um, people to come past the REN project because so many of their stories that I'm hearing are so so similar to what I experience and what I have experienced and the temptation to just jump in and say oh the same thing has happened to me which is lovely and there's certainly a place for it but um the listening sessions that we offer are meant to be about exploring what they're going through not what I am so how how do people get involved is there like a form they can fill in or yeah so again it's kind of an online application which is on our website and then they will co- go through to one of my colleagues and um there's uh, a, a meet it so we'll do a face-to-face interview if we can and then if they get through that they'll go on a training program that's eight weeks long and hopefully they'll pass it all and become a volunteer amazing and then help out the next generation of autoimmune sufferers themselves with your volunteers and your you've talked about having sort of debrief sessions and things um is there a place there as well for laughter as you as you mentioned working in the school and working in the refugee um situation do you think even in a situation that's almost this serious laughter can still play an important role so much i think um i realized that by um meeting alice who runs the ren project with me she's got alopecia um and i've got lupus and uh, a few others um and arthritis and um her and i just the idea was kind of created from the fun that we had together of talking about how rubbish everything was but um also realizing that shared experience and an opportunity to talk is invaluable and that's really at the heart of what her and I have tried to create since and what's your vision for the future bigger and bigger I suppose reach more people we want to reach more people both volunteering but also to be REN's themselves participants of the project Um, at the moment a lot of our work is one-to-one sessions and I really want to create a, a community from that so perhaps in the uh, not too distant future, we'll start enabling wrens to become part of a community and communicate with one another more, which I think will be a, a lovely uh, goal to reach. Definitely. And we know from experience of Arthur's Place how valuable that community feeling can be. How will you know when it's been successful? Is there a particular marker that you're looking for? where you'll think, yes, this is what I set out to achieve. You might have already gone past it. So we do reviews every three months, which is every six sessions. And we're just starting to do the second round of reviews now. To explain, that means that when wrens begin with us, they sort of measure the state that they're in at the moment in terms of loneliness, isolation, hope for the future. And then we review with the same questions every three months. And real success for me is to see those markers ease a bit and to see that people are beginning to feel more supported, less lonely, less isolated, less vulnerable. Even with the changing 
tumultuous ride of a living with an autoimmune disease. In a global pandemic. Yes. So it really is for you. It really is about the individual people who come to their own project and their individual imp improvement. Yeah, because lots of people don't have, you know, a straight line of improvement. I certainly wouldn't if I was recorded every three months. Um, but just, I suppose the real crux of what we're trying to do is to make people feel less lonely and by being less lonely, they feel more empowered in their own stories. And so when we try to begin to achieve that, that, that real, that, uh, that's really the mark of success for me. And that must be amazing to watch. Gosh, yeah, absolutely. So from the two years that you've been running the REM project, have you learnt more about yourself and particularly yourself as somebody with an autoimmune disease? Yes, I have. It's really helped me to articulate what's happening to me in a way that for 10, 12 years, I was completely muted. It's funny, I think my relationship with my colleague, Alice, who I mentioned before, is essentially my volunteer and I'm her volunteer. The opportunity to, to feel free in talking about it without feeling weak or pathetic or like you're taking up someone's time or space is huge. And given that the REN project focuses so much on that. It's allowed me to, to do that more and more. And I suppose there's no direct comparison between the two of you because you're not suffering from the same thing. So it almost fits the REN project bill of you don't have to be knowledgeable about the issue to support somebody through it. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's so funny because it brings it down to emotions and what socially is happening to you, which I, I've, I've always said to our volunteers when they say, what's the first question I should ask? So I think it's easy to talk about your physical symptoms or your medical journey. I don't, I don't think many people find that particularly difficult, but then moving on to how the medical journey affects you emotionally, that's a difficult bit. Um, and yeah. I, I think that's, building trust with someone and knowing that they're actually going to be interested enough to listen properly is what we're trying to trying to instill in the conversations that are happening. And I suppose that's the bit that medical, the more medical side doesn't have the time to invest in or the resources. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that the medical care that I alone and I see lots of others have had is exceptional. But I don't think many people along the way have said, well, how does that make you feel? Which, you know, as I think is becoming more and more widely recognised, is equally as important. You know, your sort of mental pain is equally as important as physical pain. Yeah, and it's odd because recently I've been quite medically unwell, but my head has been so happy that it's made it much easier to deal with. And in a way, I, I don't feel unwell. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm glad that it's, it's you know, that you're, you're still feeling okay with it. Um, so that's kind of something that I wanted to talk about because obviously you have your own diagnosis and that you have at times been unwell. And obviously we all know that the kind of variable impact that autoimmune diseases can have on your life. How do you balance that and the need to conserve both mental and physical energy with the demands of sort of single-handedly running this project 
I think I have an amazing team. I've built an amazing team. So it means that it's, it was once a single-handed feat and it's not anymore because I do have exceptional people around me um, that agree and agree with what we're trying to do and they're fighting for it as well. But also, I suppose, I haven't come to a place of acceptance with my own illness and that probably drives me to, to want to, to do more and to, to help more for other people's, uh, people that are probably further away than I am. Do you think people ever do come to accept autoimmune diseases or do you think that their life always remains split into the, the before and the after? And I'm not necessarily talking in terms of pain, but in my head, personally, there's a, there's a very strong delineation between before and after in terms of my kind of understanding of what the rest of my life would be like. And I don't think I'm ever going back to before. My brother once asked me a while ago, and it's a question that's kind of plagued me for a long time, of uh, would you rewrite your story and cut it out of your story? Would you, would you not have the diagnosis and be someone without it? And he's so insistent of the fact that it's made him stronger. And I'm not so sure. I don't know the answer. I don't think I would have created the REN project without being unwell myself. And I see and speak to remarkable people on a daily basis that are going through awful things, but they are exceptional people. And I don't know whether the two are linked. I hope, I hope it is. I think it becomes woven into the fabric of your life so much that it's hard to imagine what that would look like sometimes then without it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're all completely at ease with that fact. Absolutely. So you've, you've talked about looking after your volunteers. What do you do to keep yourself sane? And I don't know if that's kind of hobbies or maybe just getting a good night's sleep, but is there anything that you find helps you kind of juggle the mental load of what you're doing? I love exercise. It helps a lot. I swim a lot and I run and I play squash with my brother. But also, I, I have uh, amazing friends. Um, I think this, again, is part of the reason why I set up the REN project, because I have such an incredible family and friends network of support, and they help me turn off on a regular basis. <laughs> That's really important. Do you ever feel kind of guilty about switching off, or do you just see it as, an, as a kind of crucial part of what you're, what you're doing with the REN project, allowing yourself that time? I think I'm rubbish at switching off, I, um, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, it's something that my colleague, as Alice, has tried to um, drill into me from the start, and I think she's slightly given up now because she knows that I never will. I think that um, coronavirus has also made it even more difficult because you can work at all times of the day just from home. Yes. Um, yes. But I do have a, a drive to want to make it bigger and better at all times, though, so... And I, I really love what I do. I really enjoy it. So whereas previous jobs, it has been difficult to switch off and that's really affected me a lot. It, it's not really in this circumstance so much. Where do you channel that kind of strength and drive from to make it bigger and to make it better and to continue to help more and more people? Or is it, is it intrinsic to you, do you think? I think I can see the impact of what it's having on people. And I think that that is the real drive. And I, I want to replicate it more and more to reach more people 
because there are so many people out there that do constantly feel muted and unable to speak about what's happening to them. Is there one piece of advice that you would share with somebody who is earlier in their autoimmune journey than you are? I think I would probably say finding one person that you can confide in and talk to and verbalize what is happening is essential because it is going to be a really rocky road. And if you can have someone that will be beside you uh, and you know that they're not going to leave, I think it makes a huge, huge difference. And my journey for periods hasn't been that. I've shut out the world and tried to do it on my own. And that's been the moments that I found the most challenging and difficult. So yes, I would give out that piece of advice. I'm still trying to practice it myself, I suppose. I think that's excellent advice. And I would just say, if you are kind of worried about the impact that it might have on your friends or that you are scared of asking them because you, you don't sort of know what they will say, the podcast that I did with Anna might be helpful to listen to. Okay, well, thank you so much, Kate, for sharing all of that with me. I think that's going to be not only fascinating, but really insightful to our listeners. You've certainly said some things that really resonated with me that I wasn't expecting or maybe didn't realise. So if people want to find out about the REM project, either to volunteer or to sign up, where do they go? Just simply go to our website, which is remproject.org, and there's either a volunteer form or a referral form and fill out either of them and you'll come directly to me. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. It was lovely to speak to you. Thank you for listening to Arthur's Heroes. For more podcast information and access to loads of great content for young adults with arthritis, please visit arthursplace.co.uk. You can also find other young adults to chat to in the Arthur's Place social Facebook group. Follow Arthur's Place on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and find out more about Codeword Pineapple, the pin badge for people with an invisible disability at codewordpineapple.org.uk. Thank you to Novartis UK for their support in the production of this podcast.